0: of the day I know it's been a long day can I just have a show of hands to see who's read the book the Great Gatsby brilliant because there might be some plot uh, revelation spoilers yeah I'll try and avoid as many as possible but it's quite hard to talk about it without that and has anyone seen the recent film okay it's about half okay fantastic thank you right so when the Great Gatsby was first published by Scribner's, New York In 1925, the cover, as we can see here, showed a pair of cold eyes with a hint of a tear looming above a brightly lit city scene. The cover and its contents positioned it in exactly the moment of its time. There are are art deco resonances in the design of the woman's face, in the heavily made-up eyes and the pink pronounced mouth. But in the city scene below the lurking eyes, we have the gaudiness of neon. Neon lights became popular in New York in the 1920s. Therefore, from the very beginning of the novel, we are presented with an image that it is as appealing as it is unsettling, as artistic as it is man-made and manufactured, as the complexities of Fitzgerald's world, that of New York in the 20s and 30s, and the world of his novels are made clear. For this talk, I'm going to focus on these complexities and paradoxes, touching on the recent film adaptation of Gatsby and moving beyond the novel, to pick up on some of the complexities in Fitzgerald's other novels too, and showing hopefully how Gatsby is part of a narrative in the writing life of Fitzgerald, rather than its apotheosis. And in so doing, I'm gonna just cover some of the following themes. The idea of enchantment as a theme in Gatsby and beyond. What is enchantment and what is disenchantment, and how do these two things play out? The paradoxes and vacillations that govern the the novel and other novels. Uh, Fitzgerald describes Gatsby alternately as the great American novel and as rough stuff that people might shy at. Which one is it? I want to think about the iconography of Gatsby and the movement from page to screen. And I want to look at some of the motifs that come up in this and other novels, including alcoholism and car crashes. And lastly, to just touch on something which is quite new in Fitzgerald's studies, which is the relationship between Fitzgerald and John Keats. So an overall theme of this talk is the paradox of enchantment that lies beyond Gatsby and um, goes to everything that Fitzgerald wrote, arguably. Fitzgerald was painfully aware that once one encounters the thing one most desires, that thing that has held one's enchantment, the appeal of that same thing begins automatically to be lost. But one still goes back again and again. This very thing happens in a famous passage from Chapter 5 of The Great Gatsby, in which Jay Gatsby finally gets to meet Daisy Buchanan again, the girl of his dreams upon whom all of his ideals have been based. This is a very famous scene. If it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. Daisy put her arm through his abruptly, but he seemed absorbed in what he had just said. Possibly it had occurred to him that the colossal significance of that light had now vanished forever. Compared to the great distance that had separated him from Daisy, it had seemed very near to her, almost touching her. It had seemed as close as a star to the moon. Now it was again a green light on a dock. His count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. In my own work, which has looked at the idea of enchantment within American and Irish literature, I've come back again and again to this idea of what enchantment really is. Is it the promise of beauty or the faith in the possibility of this beauty? Is it the dazzling lights of a big city or the shimmer of the moment? And what happens when such enchantment proves to be an illusion? These are the questions that Fitzgerald raises in Gatsby and Beyond, And so today, I want to think about the ways in which oppositions and paradoxes play out in Fitzgerald's works to create a world in which enchantment and disappointment, promise and despair sit side by side, and to work out why and how his works still appeal almost through their being, like the first cover of Gatsby, exactly of their moment in time. So to give a brief overview of Fitzgerald's life, he was born in 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota, and died in 1940 following a series of heart attacks. Famously struggling with alcohol throughout his life, it is probably unsurprising that he died so young. A run through of his publishing achievements would suggest great success. In 1919, he sold his first story. 1920 saw his first novel, This Side of Paradise, published. Interestingly, his publisher, Scribner's, had expected him not to return from World War I, so we're planning to publish it as the tragic story of a great mind who had died young and they were quite annoyed when he came <laughs> back. In 1920, he married the beautiful but fragile, oh sorry, it's too uh, subtle this thing. The beautiful but fragile elder, Sarah, who would have her own struggles with alcoholism and mental illness. 1922 saw the publication of The Beautiful and Damned. In 1925, The Great Gatsby came out and in 1934, Tender Is the Night was published. Fitzgerald's death in 1940 came before he could finish The Last Tycoon, which he was drafting through 1939. But Fitzgerald's friend, the critic Edmund Wilson, finished the story and brought this out in a joint volume with a new edition of Gatsby in 1941. So although this timeline marks out Fitzgerald as something of a a far success, considering the frequency of his publications, in fact he spent most of his life not quite living up to the promise he had set for himself and which others had set for him. He found it very difficult to escape the uh, stereotype of the kind of drunken writer. None of his books, with the possible exception of his first, This Side of Paradise, which is now actually thought to be his weakest, was roundly placed in the media. Most critics didn't get Fitzgerald at the time, and it was only when Wilson brought out the joint volume of The Last Tycoon and The Great Gatsby in 1941 that a reassessment began. So just want to think briefly about the iconography of the Great Gatsby and its connection with the American dream. Um, I've, I've lost count of how many p- students want to talk about the Great Gatsby in Oxford admissions interviews, and I always want to know why. Um, so it's something that I'm thinking about a lot. And I think some of this, though, comes from what Fitzgerald had to say himself about the Great Gatsby and, and the kind of great ambition he had for it. So here we've got two letters that Fitzgerald sent to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, which display a characteristic, I think, of his attitudes towards his writing, a vacillation between intense self-belief and intense self-doubt, something that spurred him on and dissuaded him in equal measure throughout his career. So this first letter on the 27th of August, 1924, when Fitzgerald was drafting Gatsby in the south of France, gives a hint of the origins of the now perhaps hackneyed idea of Gatsby as the great American novel. Writing to his editor, Fitzgerald remarked, quote, I think my novel is about the best American novel ever written. It is rough stuff in places, runs only to about 50,000 words, and I hope you won't shy at it. I think shy at it is interesting here, as if Fitzgerald anticipates Gatsby as a work to be feared, perhaps because of its daring subject matter or its lascivious content. But in the second letter sent in October, we can perceive further doubts creeping in. He says, under separate cover I'm sending you my third novel, The Great Gatsby. I think that at last I've done something really my own, but how good my own is remains to be seen. This second comment then explains perhaps why Fitzgerald's first estimate, the best American novel, is inherently subjective. Can it ever be possible to write a novel that sums up an entire country for all time? So Fitzgerald wrote Gatsby in 1924 when he was staying with Zelda in the south of France. In her wonderful book, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, a kind of biography of the novel, it's really good if you can get hold of it, Sarah Churchwell displays convincingly the idea that the south of France had an atmospheric and visual impact on the novel. But as always with Fitzgerald, the hint of something else less salubrious remains. So Churchill, all through her book, kind of mimics Fitzgerald's own language in, in trying to describe his literary style. So she says, his fierce appetite for the gorgeous was being nourished by his romantic surroundings. White palaces glittered over the water and glass doors opened over terraces to which they were loosely bound by a breeze blowing through as he evoked the mansions of Long Island. He would call his novel, he thought, among the ash heaps and millionaires. I'm interested in this word ash heap and what it actually means and what it has to tell us about the paradoxes of enchantment and disenchantment at the heart of the novel. So these ash heaps find themselves in a famous passage in chapter 2 where the no man's land between Long Island Sound and the island of Manhattan is characterised by the toils and deposits of industry for context of this passage, West Egg, which is a created idea um, by Fitzgerald, is imagined as being to the east of Manhattan Island in Long Island, so that the area that is described here is is in the area that we would now call Queens. (coughs) About halfway between West Egg and New York, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile, so as to shrink away from a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes. A fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke. And finally, with a transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling into the powdery air. Here the sense of the men as being part of this scene and indeed emerging from it, marks a distinction between the rich people passing through on the train or by car, including Gatsby himself, and those who are forced to eke out their very existence on the ash heaps themselves. But at the same time, Fitzgerald's attention to language and the beauty that he manages to evoke within and from the scene, provide a paradoxical view of this squalid picture as somehow still enchanting through the breathlessness of life, of movement, and of the experiences described. So the ash heap to which Fitzgerald is most likely referring is the corona ash dump, nicknamed Mount Corona in the Queens area of New York, the area that would have been passed by the railroad and the highway en route from Long Island to Manhattan going from east to west. The amount of coal-burning furnaces in New York at the time, generated by all the ongoing industrial development, had led to deposits of ash being built up, and they had to be dumped somewhere, hence the presence of these ash heaps. It wasn't until the mid-1930s that this particular heap was cleared to make way for the Flushing Meadows complex. In the recent film version of Gatsby directed by Baz Luhrmann, much effort was put into creating the digital effects that would convey this impression of the ash that covered all of the workers in the Queens area of the city. Those of you who have seen this film might recall the layers of grime that cover the workers in or near the garages and ash heaps in the areas that the rich pass through on their way to the city and back again. As we know, this area is important in a number of ways for the plot. It is where Tom Buchanan meets the woman Myrtle, with whom he has an affair, because her husband runs the garage, and it is the place of the fateful crash and the number of miscommunications and misunderstandings that lead to the ultimate denouement of the novel. The Ash, therefore, I think, is appropriate as it shrouds all the glitz and glamour of Long Island and New York in the mystery and obscurity of the characters, and it's a kind of no-man's-land in between them and it ultimately shows up the life of Gatsby and the Buchanans for the lie that it really is. But even among the ash heaps, Fitzgerald can find beauty, and even among the failures of his characters, the author can discover enchantment and convey this to us. And it's here, I think, that the appeal of the novel lies. In a decadent passage from Careless People, Sarah Churchwell sums up accurately this appeal, its ability to enchant and delight through its dismissal of the rules that usually surround the way we perceive the world. So all of our senses are fused when we read Gatsby and confused in the giddy world of this and other novels. So Churchwell writes, "'Gatsby delights so many readers in part "'because it is a book of symbolic senses, "'carefully designed to make the pleasure "'we imagine palpable. "'Food is drenched in music. "'Lights burn in deep jewel colours. "'People drink mint juleps or luminescent champagne. Enchanted objects defy the laws of physics. Houses and women alike tend to float, while cocktails glide, disembodied through gardens. Fitzgerald merges different sensory experiences to create prose that is rich with synesthesia. Voices in this novel don't speak, they are glowing with sound. Colours nearly always suggest scents or tastes as well, while music has a tendency to liquefy. Silver scales float over a body of water called The Sound, while banjos drip their tinny tunes. So we can perceive something of this synesthetic shimmering opulence in the recent filmed adaptation of Gatsby, in which huge sets are filled with dancing, swirling people. In Gatsby's house, as portrayed in the film, everything is appropriately circular, as we can see here. The windows are arched, the staircases curve, there are baubles everywhere. Everything is awash with colour and sound, and even in a still with the idea of movement. But like those baubles which seem destined to crack at any moment, everything seems passing, delicate and evanescent. It is no accident here that I think much seems to be made of glass. Indeed as Churchill also points out, it is Fitzgerald's ability to both acknowledge the mirage as the basis of enchantment and to still delight in it that leaves the readers giddy and confused. Can we base our faith in an illusion even if we know it to be such? If, like Fitzgerald, we know that something is a myth, are we still able to derive solace or pleasure from it? This, perhaps, suggests something in turn of the idea of the American dream. That paradoxical sense that we and somehow everyone else can all achieve the impossible. So I'm now just going to consider a couple of the main themes of this novel and others and one that is evident in almost every scene of the film including this which is alcohol. And it's appropriate that some people have brought some wine to talk to them.
1: <laughs>
0: Fitzgerald was known for his proclivity for alcohol but so it seemed was everyone else at the time. Although prohibition was legally enforced from 1919 to 1933, very few controls were kept, in reality, on alcohol distribution, and meanwhile the alcohol that people could get hold of was getting stronger and stronger. Reading the letters that Fitzgerald sent to his friends and reading their accounts of the period, it would seem that everyone spent their time drunk and it's a wonder that anyone actually got anything written. (laughs) Indeed, so many words were coined for drinking at the time that Fitzgerald and his friends used to joke about it in their correspondence. And Fitzgerald apparently is credited with being the first person to use cocktail as a verb in 1926, which is a very annoying use of cocktail, So Fitzgerald's friend, the critic Edmund Wilson, uh, wrote a piece in the Bookman in 1922 to accompany the publication of Fitzgerald's second novel, The Beautiful and Damned, in which he tried to shed some light on Fitzgerald's biography and discuss what he perceived as his friend's influences. These he deduced were three, St. Paul, Minnesota, where he had grown up, his maternal Irish background, and linked inextricably to the second, alcohol. And this is, I think this is a really interesting piece because it was published like this about Fitzgerald, not about his characters and it's, it's quite cool really. So Wilson says of Fitzgerald, he is vain, a little malicious, of quick intelligence and wit, and has an Irish gift for turning language into something iridescent and surprising. He often reminds one, in fact, of the description that a great Irishman, Bernard Shaw, has written of the Irish. Quote, an Irishman's imagination never lets him alone, never convinces him, never satisfies him. But it makes him that he can't face reality, nor deal with it, nor handle it, nor conquer it he can only sneer at them that do. And imagination is such a torture that you can't bear it without whisky. Interestingly, the whisky is Scottish (coughs) spelling and not the Irish language. Interestingly and perhaps importantly, Fitzgerald had seen a draft of this essay prior to publication and had not stopped Wilson from going ahead with the alcohol references. Initially, he had seemed hesitant, noting that to Wilson, (coughs) quote, now your three influences are all important. But i feel less hesitancy asking you to remove the liquor yet he backtracks changing his mind in order to build a more accurate or perhaps even romantic picture he says don't change the irish thing it's much better as it is besides the quotation hints at the whiskey motif and that time fitzgerald spells whiskey with an e Mm -hmm. so therefore we are confronted with another paradox classic of fitzgerald a desire to downplay the grubbiness of alcohol confronted with the romanticizing potential of the Irish writer, a need for accuracy counterbalanced by a desire for glamour. The passage from the beautiful and Damned*, the novel that Wilson's essay sets out to complement describes something of the paradoxes inherent in this view of alcohol in Fitzgerald's work. And in this scene, the protagonist Anthony Patch contemplates the glittering evanescent effect of intoxication. There was a kindliness about intoxication, there was that indescribable gloss and glamour it gave, like the memories of ephemeral and faded evenings. After a few highballs there was magic, in the tall glowing Arabian night of the bush terminal building, its summit a peak of sheer grandeur, gold and dreaming against the inaccessible sky. The fruit of youth or of the grape, the transitory magic of the brief passage from darkness to darkness. old illusion that truth and (coughs) beauty were in some way entwined. So again we're confronted with the language of enchantment, the idea that the gloss and the glamour are both real and created, affecting and illusory, and ultimately giddying and damaging in equal measure, like the parties that Gatsby throws in Fitzgerald's next novel. But at the other end of the scale we also have the kind of drinking that inhibits good behaviour that leads to excess and squalidness, the kind that informs the afternoon salon with Myrtle in New York near the beginning of The Great Gatsby. Myrtle's impromptu party throws up all sorts of other questions about the relationships between alcohol, sex, and inappropriate behavior. So here we're confronted again with another paradox. So through the the eyes of the narrator, Nick, we we see different views of an attitude towards alcohol. And we have to remember here that this is a party where extramarital sex is going on behind closed doors, and where apparently respectable people are drinking away their afternoon, despite the veneer of good behaviour. But the scene also asks how many other similar events are being played out within other similar blocks, in other similar apartments around New York. So Nick says here, the bottle of whiskey, a second one, was now in constant demand by all present. Tom rang the janitor and sent him for some celebrated sandwiches. They always get the munchies, I think, don't they? (laughs) Which were a complete supper in themselves. I wanted to get out and walk eastward towards the park through the soft twilight, but each time I tried to go I became entangled in some wild strident argument which pulled me back, as if with ropes into my chair. Yet high over the city our line of yellow windows must have contributed their share of human decency to the casual watcher, in the darkening streets. And I saw him too looking up and wondering. I was within and without, simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. But what we might think here is that this idea of variety is itself an illusion, as what is really happening is that the parties are repeating themselves endlessly, something that the Fitzgeralds remarked upon in their own lives they would often lose whole months attending party after party. So is it the alcohol that in fact creates this illusion of variety? In Fitzgerald's later novels, alcohol is associated increasingly with ideas of decline, be these physical, mental or emotional, and in many ways paralleling the author's decline (coughs) into alcoholism and his wife's struggles with mental illness. Critics have often pointed out, for example, that we first encounter the protagonist of Tender is the Night Dick Driver, a physician who ought to know better, with drinks in his hand. Seen through the eyes of the 17-year-old Rosemary, the young swimmer with whom Driver will later become infatuated, the handsome Dick is making his way along a French beach with glasses in hand. Shows the man with the jockey cap is now going from umbrella to umbrella, carrying a bottle and little glasses in his hands. Presently he and his friends grew livelier and closer together and now they were all under a single assemblage of umbrellas. She gathered that someone was leaving, and this was a last drink on the beach, isn't a last drink on the beach. (laughs) Alcohol plays a part in Dick's slow decline, and elsewhere in the novel it leads to accidental death, to covering up a crime, and to many other painful events. Drink has clearly begun to lose its shimmer. And if anyone's interested in the ultimate um, representation of alcohol, I would definitely recommend reading The Last Tycoon, which I haven't really got time to talk about today. And now to think think briefly about cars and car crashes, (laughs) perhaps the inevitable result of drinking too much. So once in the years before the First World War, notes Stephen Sears in his book The Automobile in America, quote, ownership of any kind of automobile was regarded as the American dream come true. But in the decade that followed, this was amended so that it was instead about the right kind of car, the right kind of symbolic status. It is no accident then that Gatsby drives the car that is alternatively described as yellow and cream, a Rolls Royce driven by a chauffeur in a blue uniform. But the flip side of all this of course is the possibility of recklessness and of danger. The great Gatsby alone contains so many near misses that it is perhaps unsurprising that the denouement of the novel relies on a fateful car crash involving Gatsby's car. For example, the tennis star Jordan Baker nearly runs over a workman, a drunken guest drives into a ditch 50 feet away from Gatsby's door, and Tom Buchanan crashes his car outside of Santa Barbara. So two examples of car accidents from Fitzgerald's novels show the paradox of glamour and danger that lies at the heart of this presentation of automobiles. But in many of the examples, throughout the novels, there's something visceral and savage in the presentation of car accidents, representing the accumulation of the characters' excess, of their drinking, their recklessness, and perhaps most importantly, their lack of concern for others. We can perceive this quite early on in This Side of Paradise, in which the apathetic protagonist, Amory Blaine, becomes caught up in a car crash in which he is relieved not to have been injured to which his curiosity is drawn anyway. Here Amory and his female passenger respond to the scene as it unfolds before them. Well, there's one of you killed here and two others about dead. My God, look, she pointed and they gazed in horror. Under a full light of a roadside arc light lay a form, face downward in a widening circle of blood. By the time we get to Gatsby, the car crash is taken on its own cruel mystique so that the crash that leads to the final events of the novel becomes almost eroticised as Fitzgerald creates something of a tableau of the scene. It's a very famous passage. The death car, as the newspapers called it, didn't stop. It came out of the gathering darkness, wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappeared around the next bend. The other car, the one going toward New York, came to a rest a hundred yards beyond, and its driver hurried back to where Myrtle Wilson, her life violently extinguished, knelt in the road and mingled her thick, dark blood with the dust. In the next passage in the novel, Myrtle is memorably described lying dead in the road, quote, her left breast swinging loose like a flap, as if she has died by her own sword. That is the sexuality which led to her affair with Tom. And the reason why she is in the wrong place at the wrong time. But again, and perhaps strangely, Fitzgerald manages to derive something profound or even beautiful from this same scene with Nick's closing comment quote, The mouth was wide open and ripped a little at the corners, as though she had choked in giving up the tremendous vitality she had stored so long. So I'm just going to shift to finish the last couple of minutes by thinking about the relationship between Fitzgerald and John Keats, who I mentioned earlier, the romantic poet who, like Fitzgerald himself, was both attracted to the beauty of the world and aware of the fleetingness of this beauty. We might recall how in The Beautiful and Damned, drinking alcohol had led to, quote, the old illusion that beauty and truth were some way entwined. This, of course, is a direct reference to Keats' claim at the conclusion of Ode on a Grecian Urn* that, quote, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. So Keats ode, concerned as it is with the Grecian urn's presentation of its frolicking beautiful figures, caught and trapped in their moment of joy, undermines its concluding statement by suggesting that it is only through art that we can really come to believe in the truth of that statement. But perhaps it is enough that art exists to try and tell us this, even if we know that it is not ultimately true in life. In a letter to his daughter Scotty, written towards the end of his life in 1940, and just as Scottie is about to go up to university, Fitzgerald describes Keats and his ode on a Grecian urn in such a way as to suggest his aspirations for his own art. Keats had died tragically young, and his genius had not been appreciated sufficiently in his own lifetime. Perhaps Fitzgerald had the foretelling of something similar in his own life, and it would be suitably egotistical of him, I think. (laughs) Commenting on poetry in general, but honing in on Keats, Fitzgerald wrote, he says this here, Poetry is either something that lives like fire inside you, or else it is nothing, an empty, formalised bore around which pedants can endlessly drone their notes (laughs) and explanations, like myself, perhaps. The Grecian urn is endlessly beautiful, with every syllable as inevitable as the notes in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or it's just something you don't understand. It is what it is because an extraordinary genius passed at that point in history and touched it. Knowing those things very young and granted an ear, one could scarcely ever afterwards be able to distinguish between gold and dross in what one read. For a while after you quit Keats, all other poetry seems to be only whistling or humming. I think it's really interesting, something that's occurred to me. Has anybody noticed how much people have started saying it is what it is recently? Fitzgerald was saying that in 1940. Um, so I'm, I'm suggesting here, I think, that in his own writing, Fitzgerald always strives to work towards gold, but seems constantly to suspect that dross might not be far behind. But this is perhaps his lasting appeal, the desire to achieve something glittering and shimmering within a world that is fast losing its direction and where the literature that sums up that world risks losing itself among the ash heaps and millionaires. Thank you. So I think we've got about 10 minutes for questions. if Anyone has any questions?
2: Do you feel that, before, I haven't seen the film, do yes. you feel it was a good depiction of the novel as compared to the
1: previous
0: one? The previous film? Yeah. I haven't seen it, ah. the previous film. I, I meant to but I didn't have time What about this one? Um, what did other people think? Because I'm kind of undecided about it I, think, I thought it was a really good film In its own right And I thought quite a lot of the things it did with the book Were quite interesting I loved the music I loved the way it kind of made parallels between the 20s and now um, I, thought it got, I think it got that synesthesia brilliantly But I would say that it's much less subtle than the novel I think a lot yeah. of people expect the novels to be much less subtle than it is when they go to the novel. It's much more pared down, I think. Yeah. And I thought the, the film was lo- a lot more sexual than the book as well, I'd say. But that's probably inevitable. Well, I, was <laughs> <Irish>. <laughs> so I think that, that, that
2: sexuality is very
0: much. Yeah. yeah, and also I've got I've got this thing like my, my own in my own work. Something I'm interested in is the fact that Gatsby, in the book, is dark and short and <laughs> Irish and kind of a, well sort of I, I, it's implied that he's kind of Irish background alienated always blonde in the films. Mm -hmm. He's always like this kind of great Aryan kind of super Mm -hmm. race person, which is actually the opposite of what the book is trying to say, that he was this Mm -hmm. kind of invader into this world. So I always find that quite interesting.
1: I was not to think of it though, I guess, because of the films
0: as that blonde. I know. It really really kind of destroys, not destroys, but it uh, informs your reading of it. And then you don't notice that actually uh, Gatsby is supposed to be an outsider.
1: So you mentioned the music. Do you think that the music complements the film quite oh, well? Because I know they use Lana and and yeah, it's I thought quite it, I dark it and was the quite. Music
0: I thought it was really well done. The way that there was because there's a really, the way they use kind of Jay Z and then they go into Charleston and those kinds of things. I thought it was really good because I think it it enhances that that sense of it being kind of giddying and 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 sort of strange and kind of um almost a bit um uncanny as well. So what do you think? Do I yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Just I, I really liked it. Actually, I actually bought the album because I thought it, <laughs> thought it worked quite well. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's awesome. yeah. Um. Sorry, those guys there. Well, I wonder how highly
2: you rate the author. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: Fitzgerald? Yeah.
2: Mm. I mean, do you think he's one of the all-time greats? Do you think he just wrote good pot boilers? I mean, you know, Oh well, that's uh, what they
0: thought at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, that he just wrote mean, good pot
2: boilers. It, you know, the, and yet the books. Are,
0: I, I would say it's not really not, not probably not such a fulfilling answer, but I would say I don't think that Gatsby is his best book. I think Tender Is the Night is amazing. I think the way that that book deals with, with all those kind of questions about uh, mental illness and alcoholism and uh, morality are actually better done in Tender Is the Night, but it's much more of a challenge of a read. So I do think that he's been quite slightly overshadowed by Gatsby. Um, you
2: mentioned The Last talking. Yeah, that's really <coughs> good.
0: I really like that. Unfortunately, it's not finished. So, But I think that could have been his best if it if it been finished.
1: But, I mean, Gatsby was dealing with the, the problem of early fame. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole essence of The Cracker. Has anybody read The Cracker? Because it's a short story based yeah. on Esquire that I was talking about <coughs> earlier. Is what I've learned from listening to this is about how the impact of the, the use of language mm. Had a tremendous sort of influence on American literature. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and I guess that's where his brilliance mm. is.
0: There were so many words CAC, um coined just in those for four or five years that we still use now. It's incredible. So there's a lot of uh, lots of innovation, I guess, <laughs> in language.
1: But but my sort of take on it is, which is, I can now see where Hunter S. Thompson got his inspiration, which is good or bad, mm. because he had very much fear and loathing on in Las Vegas. He's, if you look back at Sinister, the way that he writes, mm. you can see this in him. Yeah. And, and I, I guess um, what we tend to forget is that, really, for, for his own life, he was dealing with that issue of early fame. So in a sense, it probably should be a yeah. obligatory reading for Paul Gascoigne. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I also think it's a problem... With Amer- I mean, it's something I have to think about in my own work, is the problem of American literature is that American culture at this time was, very, was constantly changing. And was fleeting. So, how do you write something lasting about a culture that is inherently not lasting? So, you're almost—it's almost impossible to write something like *A Tale of Two Cities* set in New York in the nineteen twenties, because everything is much more—you know—it's just much more giddying. So, it wouldn't be a kind um, of—it wouldn't be a realistic novel, really, if it it was if it was so kind of solid and uh, beautiful as perhaps something that Dickens or George Eliot would have written. So, it's, it's kind of a difficult. Um, thing to achieve I think at that time.
1: But I mean of course, you know, going back to Thompson, he was in search of the American dream, which is yeah. the essence of this. This is the American dream yeah. in the 1930s gone wrong.
0: Yeah. But it but what is the American dream? I mean it's precisely is it is I mean I think even by the twenties people were beginning to think that it was a bit of a myth, you know it's because it doesn't work. So is that not the everyone of can achieve the American dream? Is that
1: the, is that the brilliance of Fitzgerald for picking up on that? Possibly that one
0: of one of, the, <laughs> one of the brilliances. I think I actually think that he's an amazing short story writer as well. I mean, I think that's somewhere where he's really underrated. He seemed to know the art of the short story. I think.
1: And of course, a lot of this going back to was the fact that at college nobody recognised his brilliance or talent. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but that's true of a lot of writers. Though. Mm-hmm. So is he talented? well Of course, we want to study him. Oh. Why is that up to me today? I mean, you, you know, <laughs> your your opinions are all as valuable as mine. <laughs> is there any more questions? Yeah. Is there more to the connection with Keats than just the um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot of work being done on it now, actually. Um, he was just he was really really interested in Keats. Mm. And always seemed to uphold him as the kind of perfect writer and a perfect poet. And a lot of work now is being done on the relationship between romanticism and modernism. Mm -hmm. And those kind of links and that idea of the subjective experience. And that fear that both Keats and Fitzgerald had that once you start writing something down, that enchantment is lost. Mm -hmm. So that's something that goes through everything Keats writes and everything Fitzgerald writes. But it's a Mm -hmm. kind of new area of Fitzgerald's studies, really. Also
2: goes through Yeats as well. It's <coughs> Joel like Yeats, Yeats like Keats, <laughs> <laughs> goes around <laughs> like that. What about um, you know the genres of literature? You know um, the what story? The genres of literature. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. Like, uh, um, would you suggest like young writers, you know, either take their path, you know, or, like writing you novels, know, more, um, more about you know uh, structuring, you know, a story and. Um, and, and thinking about you know how to uh, construct a very um, in-depth you know um, message, at, or you know go to um, you know writing po- poems, mm-hmm. poetry, you know um, where you for perhaps you know um, the lines um, or you know the word the wordings themselves are more important. Mm. You know, were you What's
0: saying. Why does so, he write prose rather than
2: poetry? Um, no, is it like. Um, do you think, like uh, writers or uh, I mean, poets and uh, and writers of, you know, um, novels? So is it like two different type of genres? And and That's would you a good question. would you say, you know, um, you should either no, take? Because it's interesting path to
0: move. I guess because you're <laughs> saying because Keats is yeah. a poet and he's a prose writer. Um, I think it is to do with. W- writers seem to write in the form that they think best suits the experience that they're trying to convey so i guess these kinds of things you know alcoholism car crashes um, class issues they're much they're probably much more accurately conveyed in, in a novel but at the same time other write you know a lot of writers always thought that po- still put poetry is at the top of everything and being the ultimate way of expressing oneself there's still that hierarchy there But then it changed quite a lot. I don't know if if, um, people know that well. Sylvia Plath's poetry? She actually really wanted to be a prose writer and thought that the short story was the best art form but found that she didn't think she was very good at it so ended up writing poetry. So that's a sort of strange take because at this time then, particularly the short story is gaining ground in America and becoming the form to um symbolize the kind of variety of the american experience so i guess yeah i guess it depends on what your aim is and what you're trying to say and i think that's why how you select your format yeah because very few people are good at everything i think
1: it's
0: quite hard to think of a writer maybe thomas hardy he's very good at poetry and prose but there aren't that many anything else Great. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Uh, enjoy thank you. Your